so all Israel, was enrolled by genealogies, and behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was carried away into exile to Babylon for their unfaithfulness. Now the first who lived in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. Some of the sons of Judah, of the sons of Benjamin, and of the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh lived in Jerusalem. Uthai, the son of Amahad, the son of Amri, the son of Imri, the son of Bani, from the sons of Perez, the son of Judah. I wanted to say a quick thank you. Um, so you may have noticed the front of our building got a facelift, and it looks amazing. And uh, we had just a lot of people come out and help with that. And I was reflecting yesterday, one of the reasons I love Vine Street is this is kind of who we are as a church. When we need help, people step up and they give of their time, they give of their resources. Uh, and it just made me so grateful to be pastor of this church. So thank you for all of you who came out, sweated it out in hot weather. Um, I think it's a beautiful testimony to our neighborhood um, to continue to beautify our space. So let's, let's pray. Father, we long to hear from you, to hear your voice speak to us. We know that your word is, is from you. And you continue to speak. And I pray that you'll draw our hearts to Jesus. Give us the ears to hear what it is you have to speak to us. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. So Gallup, a few months ago, released the findings of a poll that was pretty newsworthy. And the reason for that was they found that in the first time of the history of Gallup polls, 1930-something, the first time since then, less than half of Americans belong to a house of worship, about 47%. Now that's, that's a house of worship. That's not a Christian church. That's synagogues, mosques. So less than half of Americans, for the first time in 80 years of polling data, don't belong to a house of worship. The high point would have been 1947, about 76%. And as of 2020, it's 47%. It's obviously pretty newsworthy that the, the trend since 1947 has just been a slow and steady decline. And what's clear is that we and our kids are facing a new cultural and religious landscape that is unprecedented in living memory. And we want to be careful, the point of that is, well, 1947 was the cheese, and so we want to get back to then. That's not the point. Every era has its own great deeds, its own great sins. The 1950s had its virtues and vices, and the 2050s will have its virtues and vices. But the point is that it will be different. It will literally not be your grandmother's America. As the cultural kind of cachet of Christianity continues to wane, we're going to be looking at just a very, very different, again, religious and cultural landscape that will have its own unique challenges as well as its own unique opportunities. And it'll look very different. Now, we're beginning a 12-week series on First and Second Chronicles. Um, and and uh, yes, we will make it through in 12 weeks. And to give you a little bit of background on First and Second Chronicles, it's one of the last books written in the Old Testament. Uh, it was written to the exiles of Israel as they're returning home to their homeland, um, and you've got to think, many of these people who are returning, again, they would have been in exile for 70 to 100 years. So there may have been a couple who were kids when they went into exile, but for the vast majority of these Israelites, 
What they knew of their homeland was what they knew from story, what their parents had told them, what their grandparents had told them. And when they finally come back to their homeland, things do not look like what they were told it would look like. It doesn't look like what they maybe remembered it would have looked like. It's estimated that maybe as few as 20,000 Jews returned from exile, a fraction of who the people of Israel used to be. The temple's been destroyed. Jerusalem is a ghost town and mostly destroyed. There are now new peoples who have taken up residence. They're coming back to a land that looks very different from what they remember. It's a very different cultural and religious landscape. And so the Chronicles, uh, uh, the book of First and Second Chronicles is written to this community that's in crisis. Again, Israel, they've been 70 to 100 years in exile where they've been enslaved, they've been told what to do. They were once a, a nation with independence. They no longer have independence. They're still a province of the Persian Empire. They've been oppressed for 100 years. They come back They're facing crop failure, we know. They're facing uh, threats from external countries. You've got to wonder, after 100 years of that, you begin to wonder, well, who are we actually? Are Are we, in fact, the people of God? Has God abandoned us? They're community in crisis. And so Chronicles is written to this community in crisis to try to answer some pretty basic questions about who, in fact, God's people are, who God is, and what he's called his people to do. And so I think... Chronicles, written 2,500 years ago, will actually prove very relevant. Because in many ways, similar to the Israelites, we also are facing just an, a new cultural and religious landscape. We look very different. And we too will have to come back and ask basic questions of, okay, well, what then does it mean to be God's people? And who, in fact, is God? And what does he want of us as his people? And so I think First and Second Chronicles will speak to our situation quite well, in fact. So again, some more background on First and Second Chronicles before we actually jump into our text this morning. It would have been written maybe 50 to 100 years after the Edict of Cyrus. We know this because the Edict of Cyrus is one of the last things mentioned in the book. That was when the king of Persia actually allowed the exiles to go home. It would have been 539 B.C. So we know it was written sometime after that, probably anywhere from 50 to 100 years after that. We don't know who the author is. does not tell us. Traditionally, Christians have thought it was, it was Ezra, who we see in Nehemiah um, and the book of Ezra. Um, but it probably wasn't. Most modern commentators don't think so. So I'm going to refer to him as a chronicler. doesn't matter who the author was, because again, the book doesn't tell us. But one of the funny things about First and Second Chronicles is, I think mo- for most of us, we've probably read First and Second Kings quite a few times, and then First and Second Chronicles not so much. And one of the reasons is that the first nine chapters or just genealogies. I uh, debated having Adam reading, read a whole chapter of genealogies. Just to give us a taste. I mean, it's like a lot, okay? There are many Bible reading plans that have foundered on the first few chapters of First Chronicles. In fact, I, I bought a, a, a commentary series that kind of pulls from ancient, uh, ancient or early Christian pastors and theologians uh, from the first six centuries of the church. And I was so excited to see what they had to say about these genealogies, and they're like silent, like, no one in the first six centuries wanted to even touch these. Because, like, what do you do with these genealogies? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we'll see that the, the genealogies were included for theological purposes. They're intentional. And specifically, what they're, they're, they're communicating to a community that's in crisis is telling them fundamental things about their identity. 
Israel, yes, you're coming back, and yes, the world looks different, and yes, you've gone through a hundred years of exile, and you're questioning who you are and who God is, but know that this is true about you. As God's people, you are chosen. As God's people, you are a worshiping community. And as God's people, you're a waiting people. Those would be our three points for us this morning. So if you have a Bible, you're going to want to have it open for this morning because we're going to be looking at a lot of stuff, and there's not going to be a whole lot of text on the screen behind me. So again, I encourage you to go ahead and open it up to 1 Chronicles and turn to chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And we're going to be looking at Chronicles' first nine chapters, which are all genealogies, and pulling out these three truths of who God's people are. But chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, says this, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Again, Israelites are asking, who are we? And the chronicler starts at the beginning, like the very beginning. It feels a little bit like when you ask someone, where are you from? And they're like, well, my great-great-great-grandfather was born in Belarus, and then his son moved to Poland. You're like, no, no, I'm, I mean, like, are you from Louisville or were you born in another state, okay? But this is intentional. He's starting from the beginning for a very intentional reason because he's answering that basic question, who are we? And this is the answer. Out of all the peoples of the earth, you are the ones that God chose. You are a chosen people. And this whole first chapter is a narrowing of, as it shows us, God created all people, but it's a narrowing selective process until we finally get to the 12 sons of Israel. So let's just look at chapter 1 to see this pattern. And the pattern, just so we see, is, is, is uh, the chronicler will kind of detail out a generation, but then the last son of that generation is the chosen one, and then it'll continue the, the, the genealogy through him, then it'll have a generation, then it'll pick again the last one, and kind of go from there until finally we get to the 12 sons of Israel. So look at Noah in chapter 4. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In verse 5, it gives the genealogy of Japheth. In verse 8, the genealogy of Ham. And then finally, in verse 17, the genealogy of Shem, who became the father of the Semitic people, who were the Hebrew people. And who comes from Shem? Look at verse 24 to 27. Shem, I'm not going to pronounce that, Eber, Peleg, Rush, Zerug, Nehor, Terah, Abram. That is Abraham. And then Abraham, verse 28, he had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. So then he gives a genealogy of Ishmael. But then look in verse 34, Abraham fathered Isaac. And the sons of Isaac, Esau, and Israel. And then it goes through those sons. Again, he chooses Israel instead of Esau. You see, he's, he's showing, gener- he's like, here's a generation of people God made them all, but he picked the last one. Next generation, bunch of sons, but God picked the last one. It's this narrowing effect until finally we get to chapter 2, verse 1. And these are the sons of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, God, and Asher. These are the people of God. Of all the people in the world, these are the ones that God has chosen to be his own. That's the point of this. Israel, you're questioning who you are. Yeah, you've had a hundred years of oppression. The world looks different. You're not who you used to be. You are God's people, God's chosen ones. Now, that wouldn't have been that unique in some ways. Every nation had its gods. But at the time, most gods would have been considered local deities. So it was like the god of the mountain or the god of the river. Here's the difference. 
the God of the Bible, as Psalm 24 tells us, that the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell in it. He's saying this isn't just a local deity who's picked you. This is the one who made Adam and Eve, all the peoples of the world, and of all those peoples, he picked you, Israel. What's the significance of that, that Israel is a chosen people? Well, it means that Israel fundamentally is not an impoverished nation. Fundamentally, Israel is not a declining nation. They're not a nation who are subservient to the Persian Empire. Most fundamentally, Israel is God's chosen people. What God says to them in Exodus 6, verse 7, as he prepares to lead them out of slavery from Egypt, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That remains most true about Israel, even as they were a fraction of who they used to be. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And think about it this way. Why, why is it so nice to be invited over to someone's house? Or better yet, why does it feel so nice to be asked out on a date? Probably if you're a guy, it doesn't happen as often. It has happened to me, though. Even if you say no, you're just flattered, right? Because it's like, of all the people. Now, it's, it's flattering as long as you're not like, you know, plan B or C. or like, As long as they didn't ask everyone else out in the room and then you're the last one. Assuming that you were the first one, it's like, man, of all the people you could have asked out, you chose me. Or when friends have us over for dinner, again, they could have done something else with that evening, but they wanted to spend it with us. Like that, that's really flattering. The more important the person is who does the inviting, the more flattered and even honored we become. Imagine it's the president of your company invites you over for dinner. Whoa. Or your favorite theologian pastor. You're like, I didn't even know he knew I was, and he's inviting me over. I do know who you are, by the way. And um, anyways, okay. But imagine, obviously not. Obviously, I'm all of your favorite pastor and theologian. But no, the more important the person is, all of a sudden, it's not just flat. Like, I am honored that you're inviting me over. The Chronicler is reminding a beaten down, a discouraged, and inadequate people. He's saying, Israel, God chose you. The God of whom Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's. Everything is his, and he chose you. Of all the peoples of the earth, to be his own. That is what's most true about you. Israel had declined. That was true. They were not who they once were but yet they were still God's chosen people. And here's the thing. In the golden era of Israel, under King David, when they were at their spiritual and military and political height, what was most true about them remained that they were God's chosen people. That God has said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Israel is God's chosen people. As I mentioned, this Gallup poll is telling us we're looking at a, just a very different religious and cultural landscape that will have its unique challenges and its unique opportunities. But one thing is that we, we just know explicit, explicit Christian influence will wane. There will not be as many Christians. There will not be as many churches or seminaries. And those churches and seminaries that do exist will be smaller. That's just where the trends are moving. It'll, it'll look different. And it... it when that happens, right, when the first Baptists of wherever are dwindling, when the megachurches um, sell their buildings to Amazon, who will take over the world, 
it will be easy to start asking, okay, I remember when church was like standing room only. Has God forgotten us? Has he abandoned us? Are we still his people? Who are we? Well, it's true for Israel, it's true for us. Peter is writing to a, a community of Christians who are facing suffering and persecution and, are, and, and oppression, and, and this is what he tells them nonetheless in 1 Peter 2, chapter 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. When we're numerically bursting and standing room only, what remains most true is that we are God's chosen people. On the flip side, when the faithful are few, what remains the same is that we are, in fact, God's chosen people. And so, Vine Street, you're beautiful. Because God chose you. Not on your highest attendance Sundays, right? Not when we're able to do landscaping and replace our front steps. On your worst days. You remain God's chosen of all the people in the world. So the first identity of God's people that Israel had to remember, which we also must remember, is that they were God's chosen people. The second identity that these genealogies tell Israel is that they, as a nation, are fundamentally a worshiping people. So first, that they are chosen by God, they are a chosen people, but second, they are a worshiping people. Again, the, the structures of the genealogy tell us a lot about what the chronicler was trying to communicate with these genealogies. Now, there are some practical considerations, okay? Um, I just watched the Marvel miniseries Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and I, like, never can do pop culture references. So here's my once-in-a-blue-moon pop culture reference. If you're not familiar with the Marvel Universe, um, it gets real weird. But basically, there's this really bad guy who figures out how to just annihilate half of the universe. He, literally, by snapping his fingers. Literally. They're gone. And then the good guys figure out a way to bring all those people back five years later. So you have, you know, five, you know three billion people vanish. Five years later, three billion people come back. The question is, okay, well, do they, do they get their old houses back? Do they get their old, like, jobs back? Like, what do you do? Like, those three billion who remain, they had to live their lives. With Israel on a, on a much, 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 much smaller scale, that's essentially what happened. Not all of Israel went into exile. There were some that remained behind. And they were there for 70 to 100 years, multiple generations. Like, they're living their lives. So when they come back, do the new exiles, like, do they, do they get their land? Or the exiles, even God's people, they haven't lived in, in, in the Holy Land for 100 years. Are they even God's people anymore? If there are practical considerations these genealogies are trying to answer, who are God's people? And part of the answer is yes, those who went in exile are still God's people. And those who remain are still God's people. But more significantly are the theological considerations. And again, when you look at these you know, genealogies, the way they're structured, the placement, so chapters 2 to 9 are just the genealogies of the 12 sons of Jacob. When you look at how they're structured, the order of them, and how much just sheer space is devoted to individual tribes, you start to see emphases. So again, Turn your Bible to chapter 6, 1 Chronicles 6. Here we have the descendants of Levi, smack dab in the middle of the genealogy. This is a place of prominence, a central, I mean, you know, in the middle of saying, hey, this is important. 
But then also look how many verses are in chapter 6, which is all about the tribe of, of, of Levi. 81 verses on one tribe. Look at, the, look at chapter 7. The, the tribe of Issachar, they get what? Five verses? The tribe of Benjamin, that was an important tribe. They get, I don't know, seven verses? Look at chapter 5. You got Reuben. He was the firstborn. He gets what? Ten verses? The chronicler is telling us something by putting the tribe of Levi center and then devoting a ton of space to him. Again, Israel, they've gone through a hundred years of like incredibly disorienting experiences. Okay, as they come back, as they try to reestablish themselves as a community, what's going to be important for them? And he puts Levi right in the middle as the most important place in the genealogies. And who are the Levites? They were the ones who led God's people in worship, specifically in the temple worship. They're the ones who facilitated God's people being able to worship him as he has commanded him to be worshiped. They're telling us, look, Israel, as you come back, as you're trying to reestablish who you are, most fundamentally, most centrally, you are a worshiping community. Now, I want to make two clarifications. And by the way, for Christians, that remains true, obviously. We don't have a temple, but Jesus said we'll worship him in spirit and truth. We remain fundamentally a worshiping community. But I have two, two, two clarifications I want to make on this. I'm not using worship in the very generic sense in, in the sense in which everybody worships. Everybody seeks for transcendence. Everybody seeks for meaning and purpose. The novelist Bruce Marshall, in, in, in an actually a novel of his, he wrote that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The man who goes to a prostitute is actually looking for God. Our source of transcendence can be it can be God, it can be sex, it can be money, it can be power. Everybody worships. It's just a question of what we worship. That's not what I mean when I say that they are a worshiping, worshiping community. Everybody is a worshiping community in that sense. Neither, though, does it mean worship in the sense of like personal devotion, my, me, Jesus, and my Bible. That's also not what it means. It means as a community together. We live in a highly individualistic culture. It's going to be our default assumption. And so when we, but the Bible, worship is always personal. You cannot worship for me. I got to actually worship God or choose to follow Jesus or not, but it's never individualistic. It's never about just me, my Bible, and Jesus. But often we think of worship, we think of personal devotions, you know, going into my closet and praying to God, just me and God. And that's important, but that's not what I mean when I say that we are, and that Israel is a fundamentally worshiping community. It means that we are people who worship together as a people. This, is in fact, is a part of our identity, our worshiping identity centered around worshiping God together. And, and, and this is just kind of a side note, but just, again, an example of like how... It, the reason this is important is, again... Our default will always be kind of an individualistic understanding of our faith. It just is. I remember the first time reading Augustine's Confessions. He was a pastor in the 4th, 5th century AD. And he wrote a spiritual autobiography called The Confessions. And, he's, and, and he was deeply impacted by this guy named Ambrose, who was another pastor. But he has this whole section on Ambrose's reading habits. And it was just the weirdest thing because he's describing Ambrose and how amazing he is that Ambrose could read silently. 
Like literally, he's like, Ambrose, you'd see his eyes going across the page, but yet his mouth was silent. And it's like, <laughs> why is that a strange thing? Augustine was far more brilliant than any of us in this room by far. And he's amazed that this guy is reading silently. And the reason, I mean, we, we're not totally sure, but we think the reason, again, is when books were not prevalent, when the whole city might have a couple Bibles, if you're reading, you're reading out loud to people. And so you literally didn't even know how to read quietly. Kind of flips like personal devotions up on its head, right? Like we think of reading in just my devotional time. But for so much of history, if you read the Bible, it would have been out loud with people around you. Just an idea of, I mean, again, like the fact that that's strange to us just proves like how strange we are historically. And so here's, here's a question, okay? So, so if we are, if, if part of our identity is that we're worshiping community in the sense that we worship together as a corporate body, again, it was, you know, when he's detailing the Levites, they handle the temple worship where all of God's people would come together at least once a year to worship him. If we're fundamentally a worshiping community in the sense that we worship together, a well, question for us is when you think of following Jesus, what is essential about following Jesus is Sunday gathering part of that. Not in the sense of the guy, yeah, I should probably go to church, but like, I can't imagine following Jesus and not worshiping in Sunday morning. Because that's, that's the biblical picture of who we are as God's people. It's not a matter of legalism. It's not like God's going to like us more if we come to church on Sunday. Or is it this is what's going to earn his favor? No, no, it's just like, this is what we do because we're Christians. If you're an employee... It's not crazy to think that you're expected to be at work every day. It's just like, if you want to be an employee, that's what you do. As Christians, like, if we want to live out our worshiping identity, like, this is what we do. We gather together. It's part of our identity. Now, gathering together is somewhat contextual. looks different in different churches, different historical eras, but as, as Vine Street, what does our gathering look like? Well, we have a Sunday morning gathering. We worship God. And then we have small groups that meet throughout the week, and men's and women's discipleship. That's what our gathering looks like at this kind of stage in our church's history. And my goal as a pastor is that every member of our church who is physically able is coming Sunday mornings and involved in a small group and involved in a men's or women's discipleship group that comes out to one morning a week and one evening a week. And again, the reason for that is not because there's some you get brownie points with God or some legalistic, arbitrary rule, but it's like if we're not meeting together at least once, you know, one morning a week and one evening a week, I just, I'm not sure how we could possibly live into that identity of being a worshiping community. I don't know how it's possible. So where are you? Like, we're all in different places. Maybe for you, um, the next step to live out your identity as a worshiper of God is just making commitment to be here Sunday morning. Like, that's been tough and you've been spotty, well, maybe the first step for you is, I'm going to be here every Sunday, rain or shine. Well, if you're sick, stay home. But you know what I mean. If you can, like, physically drag yourself out of bed, like, I'm going to be there. Maybe that's the next step. Or maybe you've been coming, you're regular on Sunday morning, and the next step is to join a small group or join a men's and women's discipleship group. What's the next step for you to live out your identity as someone who's, with, who's a member of the worshiping community of God? 
So again, the first two identities that the chronicler reminds the people of God are that you are a chosen people and you are a worshiping people. But lastly, chronicler reminds the people of Israel that they are a waiting people. And again, we're going to look at the structure of the genealogies here to see where this comes from. So look at chapters 2 and 3. So chapter 2, again, this is, you know, chapter 1 is all about God's narrowing selection, finally, of the 12 sons of Israel. Then chapters 2 to 9 are all about the genealogies of Israel. But where does he start? You probably have a heading in your Bible, and it says the genealogy of David. He begins by first telling the genealogy of David. First two chapters. Again, place and space tell us prominence and emphasis. Puts David first. I mean, it's like the center and the first are like the two places of prominence. And then he gives David two chapters. That's even more than the tribe of Levi. And then in chapter 4, we get to Judah. That's interesting because Reuben was the firstborn. And so you think it would be Reuben, but he puts Judah because David came from the tribe of Judah. And so what he's telling the people of Israel is, you're a worshiping community. The temple is central to that identity. But if you really want to be the people of God, you also need a king. You're never going to fully be the people of God unless you have a king, a king who's like David, a king who comes from the line of David. And so, so much through First and Second Chronicles will be an emphasis on who the king is, why they need a king, what he should be like, what goes wrong when there either isn't a king or there's a really bad king. Because part of the identity of being the people of God is having a king. Now, here's the historical reality. Israel does eventually rebuild the temple. In fact, pretty early on. So they, they handle that part. But they don't have a king for 400 years. Eventually, God does send a king. And his name was Jesus Christ. And he did come from the line of David, but he was far better than David. Compared to Jesus, David was a two-bit parochial player. And Jesus wasn't just a political ruler, but he was God himself. And he didn't come just to give us political freedom, but he came to reconcile us to God. So the king did come. But for the original audience, they're going to be waiting 400 years. And God, who's one of his inspiring chronicles, knows this. And so he's telling Israel, you, yes, the king is going to be essential for being God's people, but you're going to be waiting a long, long time for that to happen. Now we likewise, again, Jesus has come, the king has come, but he's ascended into heaven. And while his kingdom advances, we see this by faith. We don't see it as a physical reality yet. And so we also are awaiting people. And in a broken world, it's torn by sin, we groan with creation. So we yearn for the king to return, to make our faith sight to bring an end to evil and pain and suffering, we groan in our prayers, in our spirits. Come, Lord! We remain awaiting people. And this is why the Apostle John, in his book of Revelations, which finishes the New Testament, he ends that whole, incredible, beautiful, strange letter with a simple prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. And we're still waiting This is our identity. 
as we enter, again, an unprecedented future that will look religiously and culturally very different, we wonder who we are and what's our place. This is the reminder we remain God's chosen people. We are a worshiping community fundamentally in who we are. And we are awaiting people as we wait for King Jesus to return. Let's pray. Jesus, I, we do long for you. And we wish that you would come home soon. I pray that as we wait until that day, you'll give us eyes of faith to see you, to know you're present by your spirit, that we'll still see your kingdom advance in our midst, in our city, around our country, and around the world. I pray that we will remember the basics of who we are, that will ground our identity as a church, that we have been chosen by God to be his own, that we worship together, not as an extra, but as a fundamental part of who you've made us to be, and that we are waiting and so we're not surprised when this world is not what we hoped it would be because we're waiting for the king to come back. So please may you preserve us in your grace and your mercy. Amen.